welcome to The Straw Hat with Rabbi David Wolkenfeld and Rabbinate Goldie Guy. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. So welcome to after the holidays, okay? This is a very special time of year. The holidays are over, um, and uh, we now get to pivot towards normal life, quote-unquote normal uh, normal Jewish life. Um, how were the holidays? The holidays were great. You know, as you said that, it's like this transition into Achrei HaChagim. Always has that line that from uh, that Israeli song, Achrei HaChagim Yitchadesh HaKol. Right after the Chagim, everything will be renewed. There's this opportunity for starting over, renewal, even like renewal in our routines. So I, I, I like that idea, as you said it. So I guess so. Tell, so I guess uh, I, I, I also feel really good about the holiday. I felt good about the holidays. I also feel good that they're over. Um, I, I people keep asking about the experience uh, of the shul this year and um, uh, and what it was like and et cetera, et cetera. And I, I feel like we. I know. I personally, I had fairly low expectations with pandemic holidays, and those expectations were 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 far far. You know, we, we met we met and exceeded those expectations. At least at least personally, I, I found it uh, much more moving and inspiring and powerful to be uh, praying in our distanced, small, um, you know, spread out um, tefillot than than I anticipated. That was really great, and knowing that there were so many different things happening spread out across the neighborhood in different locations. Also, I found that a very like inspiring feeling over the course of the holiday. So it wasn't all of us in one place at one time in large numbers. It was, you know, smaller numbers. But, but in aggregate, uh, many hundreds of people were able to participate in various in-person activities. And the people who uh, were at home, I, I hope, I, I think and believe and, and hope that they uh, had um, valuable experiences too. So I, I, um, is there any like memory in particular that sticks in your mind, like some... Uh, some highlight of like the holidays this year, five, seven, eight, one holidays at Anshe Shalom. Well, it was my first high holidays at Anshe Shalom. So this will definitely be a memorable one. Um, I was going to say, uh, there's like a real comfort in returning to ritual in a way that's familiar. Uh, and I think like one of the greatest achievements we had was that feeling of normal that we're all kind of grasping for right, right now. Um, the feeling of, Oh, like I'm with, the ASBI community, I'm davening in shul, whether that was in shul or in the parking lot, right? We're having tot Shabbat, right? We're ha- like, tots are singing bim bam and they're excited about it and they want to go and, and it's happening in a safe way. And like that feeling of normalcy, I think it was a like, n- you know, normal abnormal, but that, that return to the familiar was really, really, I think the, the most comforting thing about the Chagim. Uh, high points of the holidays were there were there were so many. I think, like the community really that's really. That's a cop out. That's a cop out. <laughs> no, I'm gonna. Uh, don't worry, I'll get there. <laughs> I, uh, I'm trying to pick out which one. Of course. I'm gonna say. Well, honestly, well, you and I haven't been really leading in shul at the same time. Uh, so when you're in shul, like I'm taking less of a frontal role as much in you know in front of the congregation and and. The women's tefillah was an opportunity for me to kind of stand in front of the congregation and like really be rabbanit in that capacity. And it felt really nice. It felt lovely to be surrounded by community and see the community in action, specifically the community of women dedicated to tefillah, dedicated to learning and Torah and celebration of Torah, mothers, daughters, grandmothers all gathered together 
making this tefillah happen, that was a really, really wonderful moment. And like even that was my first in-person sermon since coming here. And like that felt, it felt so good. It felt so lovely to share in Torah together uh, in the parking lot. We also uh, got to do some distance singing, you know, like that, just the spirit of the holiday that we conjured and the, the spirit of community and togetherness, even as we were distanced in tefillah around Torah, that was really a highlight for me. That, that totally, totally counts as a, as a highlight. That was great. Thanks for sharing that. And thank, thank you for your... Thank you for the validation. For, for your work. <laughs> I, 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 um, another like line I keep using, people keep asking, like, like how, when people ask how it went, I, I say that we, we learned so much, you know, like about how to plan holidays under these strange circumstances. And I just, I just hope we never have to use what we've learned. Like if we had to do it again, we would Amen. be a lot better. We, we'd be a lot easier. Uh, I just hope we never are pushed to do that. But we get to, you know, use our older playbook, our, our conventional playbook. I, I think there are some things that will, um, that will keep. I, you know, I think we, uh, I, I don't know why, why wouldn't we um, always have Kol Nidre 15 minutes earlier so that it can be broadcast to people who can't make it to shul. I don't know. That seems like a easy thing we can do for in- sake of inclusion, uh, yeah. even when it's safe for hundreds of people to pack into our shul once again, you know, maybe next Yom Kippur. Uh, but like, why not mm. like make the tweaks that we can to include more people, right? It just seems like, um, you know, you know, e- even as we hope to leave a l- much of this behind, um, there, there are many things that... Uh, I hope we can take with us, you know, all those meetings yeah. that should have been phone calls, right? You know, now we know, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, exactly. Um, and in terms of Acher Chagim, you know, it was, I just, um, every year it kind of surprises me because I, I always get like so focused on the holidays and any, anything else that crosses my desk, you know, comes into my inbox. I just push it off after the Chagim, after the Chagim, and then it's after the Chagim and, and like, you know, maybe like 10 hours or so, like a little bit of exhalation, a little bit of um, breathing. But then it's like, whoa, I have a really long to-do list because I have like three months worth of, uh, of agenda items that have been pushed off till after the holidays. And now it's after the holidays. So it's a uh, feeling of relief, but it's also a busy time. Uh, at least for me, that, that's how, since I moved here, that's how that experience has gone. Um, yeah. So in, in Dafyomi, we've been learning Masechet Erevin now for some 60 days. And it is definitely... Um, it, it's a challenging masechet uh, for me, at least, to to to, to learn through. And, you know, the because there are some complicated concepts that that have to work through, and um, it, it's really helpful. I, I've been using the Korin Steinsalz Gemara, which has a chart, and uh, you know, the art school Gemaras also have charts. And if you're using an old Vilna Shas or some online Gemara uh, from Safaria, there are other websites and places you can go to find charts and, and maps and diagrams that really really helps. Uh, but it's um, uh, it's still not easy, uh, but uh, we're you know, going through, plodding along as as one does. Uh, a, a few weeks ago, there was a concept that I, that really captivated me, and I, I kind of want to uh, kind of share it with the listeners, with a as as a way of indicating my intention to return to this topic and hopefully uh, teach about it in greater detail and greater length um, uh, later on. Uh, you know, at some point in the coming months, uh, it's the concept of Brera, which seems to mean something along the lines of like retroactive determinism, I think is how it's best to be explained. It sounds right. It sounds right. Yeah, sounds okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the example in the Gemara is you, you, you make an, it, it comes in the context of an era of Tchumen, right? One is allowed to leave one's home or one's town and walk in 2,000 cubits in any direction. 
it's less relevant, I think, today because we just live in really, really large, like, urban areas that are surrounded by suburbs and exurbs. And, you know, but, like, if you think of it like a, I don't know, stereotypical, like, town, which has, like, an end, and then outside the town is empty space and fields and forests. So you can only walk 2,000 cubits in any direction from your town. Um, but you can make an Erev. You can put some food before Shabbat, like, within 2,000 cubits of in one direction to the east of your town and say, I want to establish my Shabbat residence here at this location. I'm leaving my food here to indicate that. That's called an Erev Tchumin. And then your 2,000 cubits are from where that Erev is rather than from your home or from the border to your town. And that gets you, you know, it gets you some extra, some extra distance. Maybe it can get you even to the next town over where you might want to be for Shabbat. So Breira comes up where you don't know which direction you want to go. Um, there's some invading army you may have to flee, or your teacher is coming to deliver a lecture, and you don't know if they're going to be speaking in the east or in the, in the west, and you don't know which direction you're going to want to go. So you make two Arabs, and you say, if my teacher comes to the east, my Arab is this one, and if my teacher comes to the west, my Arab is that one. And whether or not this works is kind of conditional, um, like setting of the Arab may hinge on the question of Breyer, which I think is sort of like, a kind of ret- that retroactive determinism, like it was already known at the time when I made the air of which direction my teacher was, from which direction he was coming, then that sort of gives me enough certainty at the time before Shabbat started where my air was only in one place. Um, and I think the kind of deeper question then is, like, what, was it knowable or was it just, and I didn't know, or was it not knowable? And we assume a kind of retroactive determinism. Does that, does that make sense? Um, it's confusing. It is confusing. Okay. <laughs> so I think it is confusing because it is confusing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess my task that I'm sort of sharing this is to kind of pledge to kind of make some sense of it and try to share it. I, I find it really captivating because I think it's confusing in the same way that some of modern like quantum physics and like you know also <laughs> operates right and i think there's no, it's a... looking at all the possibilities in any given moment and saying yes each of these possibilities represents a real world right like if i go back to that moment there was yes possibility exactly, exactly. a and possibility b and both of those choices created different realities and let's live this rea- let's live the current moment as if you chose possibility a right as if you chose possibility b right that's the I think so. I think so. But it's not your choice. It's like some other choice that someone else is making that you don't know right. about, right? It's uh, right. So I, I, I think in classic, classic physics would say that if you were able to know the location of every single molecule, particle in the universe, you could predict the future because everything is mechanistic, and you could just like, right? Every if you knew where every atom and every subatomic particle and you could like identify where it was in a computer big enough right to put in every uh (laughs) particle in the universe you could then predict the future because all of their you know movements and future like interactions could be predictable based on like the basic laws of physics as we've uncovered them um and i think like quantum physics tells us and with uncertainty like no actually it's not true there's a certain randomness that's built in i think this bothered einstein this is famous line God doesn't play dice with the universe. I don't mm-hmm. think that was because he was a deeply like religious person or at all a deeply religious person, but I, I think he was bothered by this idea of randomness. And uh, to me, the Brera question, this like, is this is there retroactive determinism? Is that maybe like operating in the same sort of question that if it emerges that my teacher came from the East, then already before Shabbos, it was like determined that my teacher would 
the next day come from the east. And so that Eruv is the one that's established, and I can go in that direction. Um, so this is... So this is like a lot. This is like a medium-term project that I want to like um, circle back to, and I hope to teach you about it in the coming months. But I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of excited by it. Yeah, I don't know if I'm comfortable with the idea of determinism, even as right. That really plays with their, our idea of free will and choice, right? If that's yeah, totally. It's difficult to wrap your mind around as as beings that are making choices in the current moment, right? Conscious beings. Totally, um, totally. I, I think psychologists and like many scientists, like operating within a scientific worldview, are like very, very, um, are increasingly convinced that free will doesn't really exist. That like our conscious choices are just the like unfolding of like chemical f- interactions in our brains that we don't have control over. That seems hmm. really hard for me to. Um, like I, I think that's like I don't know if that's the majority or it's a substantial percentage or something of scientists who study this. I just find it really hard to uh, accept because my, I guess my experience of consciousness is that I'm making choices and uh, right. So I mean, there is right. We can introduce that an element of choice if we say, well, if we if we're not buying into the entire theory that everything is determined at the onset. Uh, based on previous actions. But like, if we think about it in terms of like psychologically, like I create patterns in my mind of thought or patterns in my mind that I'm accustomed to, to following. And then if I can step back and notice them, then I have more free will in the moment to not do what I'm used to doing to not, right? Like Absolutely. maybe the teacher would have been predetermined to come from the East and not the West. And they knew that all along, but, you know, but then said, well, of course I'm going to choose, but really, if they make a choice to come from the East, that's something that they've been habituating themselves to do. And therefore... That's right. That's very good. Right. And I, I agree. Right. It's it's not necessarily a binary of free will or, or no free will. There's actually a range of freedom that we do or don't have. We can cultivate our freedom. I, I think that's... Like as a moral principle, I think that's definitely true. We can... It's a way of bridging the gap. Yeah. Increase the the realm in which we have free choice and where we operate or push the front foot, right? I think that's... Uh, Rabbi Dessler spoke about that, right? The nikudat mm-hmm. Like there's a certain moral choices that are already based in habituation are kind of either for good or for ill have already been like made for us by our own prior choices. But there's for each one of us, there's like some place where we have a real live choice and a real like difficult choice to make to do the right thing at any given moment. So yeah. that, that's sort of helpful. That's not a It's not like a binary yes or no. It's like a range of how much choice we have or where do we have that choice um, versus not. Because I mentioned Einstein, it reminded me, you know, there's, I, I don't know if this is still the case, but it used to be that um, the fellow who, was like in charge of or one of the librarians who supervised Einstein's papers at the Hebrew University was a Hasidic guy who like <laughs> lived in Yushalayim and um, was from Switzerland. So he knew German very well and, you know, I guess was a li- librarian and whatever, I don't know what his academic background was, but he had this role of being in charge of Einstein's papers, which were mostly donated to Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, I met him because he came to Princeton because Einstein also lives in Princeton, right? He lives in Princeton and work, you know, was at the Institute for Advanced Study. So Princeton University also has a lot of his papers and, and there's some like joint publishing of his papers between Hebrew University and Princeton University. So this librarian or archivist came to Princeton to um, like negotiate or talk about this with some publisher or something at the Princeton University Press. And he, I don't think he stayed in her house. He had dinner at her house, I think. We invited him because he needed... Like people who came to Princeton and needed the local kosher restaurant, like the local kosher restaurant was our was our house. So <laughs> so we came for dinner. We invited some students to join us, and he like it was like really really interesting. And he felt like such a real personal connection to Einstein. He felt he knew him, like like really knew his soul. Felt that he was like like 
felt there was like a pintillied, like some like spark of like Jewishness deep inside Einstein and that animated some of his writing and thinking. And he, he, he felt he identified that. Uh, it was really, really an interesting um, person. I, so I, I don't know. That's, uh, I always think about that in the context of Einstein and who he was and things that he did and stuff. Cool. So this week is Parshad Breshit. Uh, we get to start the Torah again. The um, That's, I think, kind of exciting. Uh, <laughs> one idea that's exciting that I think is sort of valuable this year, this Simchat Torah, I said it, you know, on Simchat Torah itself, that since we didn't merit to complete the Torah this year, we skipped all those parshiots when the shul was closed and when most shuls were closed all over the world. Um, so, you know, the Torah was not completed this year, but it's not by us, certainly, but we do get to start the Torah again, and that's really exciting and, and filled us, fills us with joy on Simchat Torah and should fill us with joy in Parshat Breshit and hopefully with a lot of luck and a lot of Siyata Deshmaya, divine help and the carefulness of doctors and all of us in take, making responsible choices, we'll get to finish the Torah this year uh, as, as we begin it. Amen. Yeah, yeah. So there's a like a really interesting like debate, or I don't know if debate is the right word, there's like a dynamic at the beginning of the parish that we were talking about before we started recording uh, that uh, it, it, I think it's so interesting. You, you sort of mentioned it as something that you thought was sort of interesting and curious about the opening verses of Breshit, and I am already planning to to teach this uh, this topic <laughs> with the uh, with the children in, in this weekend's parent child learning. So it's sort of interesting. We both uh, felt felt this was um, compelling to us. Maybe it's not a coincidence. So I want you to share share the um, this curious phrasing in in our opening uh, uh, opening parsha and parsha Breshit. Yeah. So I think this comes back to our. Uh, thoughts at the beginning of the podcast of Chagim like there's a sort of chidush, there's a there's a renewal, a hitchut that happens after the Chagim, right? And we're talking about that creative process uh, of what what does it mean to create a new, what does it mean to have a new beginning, uh, which is Parshat Breshit. So at the end of the Breshit narrative, we read the passage that we're familiar with from Kiddush, which is So it says in the Pasuk that God finished or completed all of the work that God had done on the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day. So the commentators ask, what's the meaning of that word Vayichal, right? We know that God rested, but what does it mean that God actually completed the creation on the seventh day? That implies that there was something left to be completed on the seventh day that God actually added to the creation on the seventh day. And that's not what we think about when we think about Shabbat. We think about God resting. So what is that meaning of the word vayichal, that God completed something on the seventh day? So Rashi quotes a Midrash on that pasuk and says, well, what was the world lacking uh, What that God had to complete? Well, the world was lacking rest, minucha. So that when Shabbat was introduced, rest was introduced. And in that introduction of rest, the work of creation was completed. So that's what Rashi says, is that the Vayichal, what had God finished? Rest. So that this idea from the Midrash is that rest and minucha is just as integral to the wholeness of creation as creating Shemaim Va'aretz, heavens and earth. Um, so this teaching is, is always poignant to me as we come back around to Breshit, uh, and, and as people, right, that our instinct is to keep creating, keep working, keep bettering the world and contributing and do, 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 right, work all the time and try to keep going. Um, and this part of the narrative, this vaichal word of saying, and God completed, God completed the process with rest, tells us that in the transition from 
work, work, work to newness, right? New beginning, right? You can't just keep working though. We actually have to give ourselves rest that even like God is modeling for us that part of the, the process is resting and, and stopping. Um, so that's like physical rest from, from actual physical labor, rest from effort to change things, from movement. And minuchat hanefesh, also this resting and acceptance of what is, what you've already done. And without that stopping and, and kind of evaluating, stepping back, right? We wouldn't have the energy to then envision for the future, to keep moving forward, to plan and to execute. So that's what this vaicha word is saying, is that minucha, uh, Shabbat, right? The Shabbat where minucha was created, where rest was created, teaches us that art of acceptance of actually it's a day when we have to sit and be with what is. We have to be whole and calm. We can't outwardly change the world, which is the prohibition of the 39 uh, prohibited categories of labor, right? We can't create in the world and we're not allowed to plan for the future, daber davar, right? We have to actually sit with things as they are. We're forced to rest. We can't alter anything. So we need this rest and rejuvenation. And that, that's what this verse is telling us, right? That too is part of the creation process. That's part of completion. Having minuchata nefesh, having minuchata guf is part of the process of, of becoming or, or moving forward towards what we want. Um, so instead of like being discouraged by those moments of like, oh, I'm so tired. Oh, I actually need to, like, I need to take a rest. Like, no, like be juve- rejuvenated by that. Be invigorated by that, knowing that that's actually part of our creative process. That's Shabbat's invitation. That's the invitation of Shabbat Breshit, of this new beginning, right? Shabbat invites us to rest our minds, to focus on what's good, what's here and now, and then to clear our heads, to be open to sit with our present blessings, and then that can ease us into shifting into what we want and what we're working towards in the future. Okay, okay. You've uh, convinced me. You should take the rest of the day off. You should rest more. So. I think I already took yesterday. No, it was two <laughs> days ago. So thank you for All that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Point made. I, I, um, I think it was Umberto Casuto, that 20th century Italian uh, Torah scholar. He, he noticed something about these verses, which I, I think is kind of neat. Because I think there was a... A push that you know, some some who suggest some academics and you know a hundred years ago suggested that there was like a mistake uh, in like, like there, it should say v'chalohim b'yom hashishi right and I think that's even the Gemara talks about like some ancient heretics who felt there was a mistake it should say uh, God finished on the sixth day right it was I mean that, I guess all of these commentaries I guess Rashi is, is responding to this like why is it's, it, it you expect well, the midrash to say was, finished, so even even earlier right yeah exactly right? that, that's what they're responding to right they're all responding to the expectation that it's on the sixth day and some even suggest it should be the sixth day maybe there are some ancient versions that, that have it be the sixth day right um, so hmm. Kasuta points out though that no it really is like the actual authentic true uh, like way these verses should be uh, formulated is how it's preserved in in the Torah and and the he there's a poetic structure that he notices you have um, three lines each with seven words all focused on the seventh day so it's vechal elokim bayom hashvi'i malachto asherasa seven words vaishbot bayom hashvi'i mikom malachto asherasa seven words and vayvorech elokim et yom hashvi'i vechadeshoto so you have these three phrases each with um, seven words all like circling like this the seventh day, the seventh day, the seventh day, in these phrases that are in, in each of them seven words long. So he felt like, you know, whatever the meaning is, like this is about the seventh day and 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 not about any other day. So 
I don't know. I kind of thought that was Wait, but Rabbi, did I convince you to rest or no? <laughs> um, no? You convinced me to want to rest. How about that? <laughs> We're getting there. Thanks. Excellent.